Welcome to episode number 17 of In the Word with Mel Bennett, a study of scripture passages from the Word of God. We're so very glad you're with us today. My name is Steve Webb. Today, Pastor Bennett's topic is misunderstanding and understanding and lifting up Christ. His text is John 3, verses 7 through 13. So get your Bible out as we join Pastor Mel Bennett. Pastor? Thank you, Steve, and... Once again, I want to welcome you to our podcast this afternoon, or whatever it is, evening or morning or afternoon or whenever you're listening. This is afternoon for me here in Southern California. I invite you to go with me to the Gospel of John, the third chapter, verses 7 through 13, and follow along as I read. Jesus speaking here says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you a teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who comes down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now there are two kinds of misunderstanding and ways that we respond to them. First, there is the lack of knowledge. There is the misunderstanding of the person who misunderstands because they have not yet reached a stage of knowledge and experience to which they are able to grasp the truth. They have a genuine inability to understand, an inability which is the inevitable result of a lack of knowledge. Our duty as believers to these is we must do all that we can to explain things to them, so that they will be able to grasp the knowledge which is being offered to them. Secondly, there is an unwillingness to understand. There is a misunderstanding that comes from an unwillingness to understand. There is a failure which comes from a refusal to see. A person deliberately closes their mind to the truth which they do not wish to see. Nicodemus tragically fell into this group. The teaching about a new birth from God should not have been strange to him. For example, Ezekiel spoke of these things. In Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, in the 26th verse, he says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Jesus is speaking of much the same thing that Ezekiel is talking about here. Nicodemus was an expert in scripture, and often the prophets spoke of the very experience that Jesus was talking about. If a person does not want to be reborn, they will deliberately misunderstand what rebirth means. If a person does not want to be changed, they will deliberately shut their eyes, their mind, and their heart to the power that can change them. In the final analysis, what is the matter with so many is simply the fact 
when Jesus comes with his offer to change them and recreate them, if they were honest, they would answer, no thank you. I am quite satisfied with myself as I am. I don't want to be changed. A second defense is this, and Nicodemus fell back on a second defense. He said, this rebirth about which you talk may be possible, but I can't understand how it happens and how it works. Now Jesus uses the Greek word for spirit, which is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma, and it has two translations, spirit and wind. This is so with the Hebrew word for spirit, ruach, R-U-A-C-H, which can be also translated wind. Here is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. You can hear and see and feel the wind, pneuma, but you do not know where the wind comes from and where it is going to. You may not understand how and why the wind blows, but you can see what the wind does. You may not understand where a gale comes from and where a gale is going to, but you can see the trail of flattened field and uprooted trees which the gale leaves behind it. There are many things about the wind you may not understand, but the effect of the wind is plain for all to see. So the spirit, pneuma, is exactly the same. You may not know how the spirit works, but you can see the effect of the spirit in human lives. Furthermore, Jesus said this to Nicodemus, This is no theoretical academic thing of which we are speaking. We are talking about things which we have actually seen. We can point to man after man who has been remade, recreated, reborn by the power and the effect in the work of the Spirit. There are any number of things which we use every day without knowing how they work. Few of us understand exactly how electricity works, yet we turn on the lamp every night and the TV each day and enjoy the effects of electricity. We do not deny the existence of electricity because we do not understand how it works. We may not understand how the spirit works, but the effect of the spirit on the lives of individuals is there for all to see, and the only unanswerable argument for Christianity is a Christian life. No person can disregard a religion and a faith and a power which is able to make bad people good. Praise God. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I have tried to make things simple for you. I have used simple human pictures taken from everyday life, and you have not understood. How can you ever expect to understand the deep things if even the simple things are beyond you? Here is a warning for each of us. It is to discuss, to study, to read books about the intellectual truth of Christianity. But the essential thing is to experience the power of Christianity. It is fatal to think of Christianity as something to be discussed and not something to be experienced. Christianity is a living, vital experience of the power of Jesus Christ. At the heart of Christianity, there is a mystery. But it is not the mystery of intellectual apprehension. It is the mystery of redemption. The last statement is made by the Apostle John, I believe. It is as if someone asked, All that Jesus said may be true, but what right has he to say it? John's answer is very simple. Jesus came down from heaven to tell us the truth of God. When he had it companioned with man, he died on the cross, 
for the sins of men and then return to his glory in heaven. Jesus' right to speak came from the fact that he knew God personally. He had come from heaven to earth, and he was, John said, God's own truth, God embodied in man that gave him the right to speak of these things. Now go with me to the 14th and 15th verses, and let's talk about the uplifted Christ for just a few moments. Verse 14 reads this way, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This illustration comes from the Old Testament, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, where we read these words. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and our souls loathe this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. The children of Israel complained against God and Moses, and asked why they had ever left Egypt. God was angry and sent serpents among them, and many died. God told Moses to build a large image of a serpent, hold it up before the people, and whoever looked on it would live. The story impacted the people of Israel. It was not the serpent that brought them life, but the fact that they believed the God who had spoken to Moses. It was God who had healed them, not the serpent. The serpent was only a sign and a symbol, a point to turn their thoughts to God. And when they turned their thoughts to God, they were healed. So John took that old story and used it as a symbol or a forecast of Jesus. What he is saying is simply this. If Jesus is lifted up, when people turn their thoughts to him and believe in him, they too will find eternal life and salvation. The idea of lifted up is used of Jesus in two senses. First, of being lifted up on the cross, and second, of being lifted up into glory at the time of his ascension. The two are inseparably connected. One could not have happened without the other. For Jesus, the cross was the way to glory. It is the same for us today. If we refuse the cross that every Christian has to bear, in one way or another, we lose the glory of the cross and the glory of the future. It is one of the unalterable laws of the Christian life that if we refuse the cross, there is no glory to come. There are two very important phrases which I want to attempt to look at with you in this this, morning, this afternoon. First of all, there is believing in Jesus. I believe this means at least three things. Believing with all our heart that God is as Jesus declared him to be. Let me repeat that. First of all is believing with all our heart 
that God is as Jesus declared him to be. It means that we believe that God loved us, cares for us, wants to forgive us, and that God is love. The Jews looked on God as a God of laws, a judge, a demanding God, one who demanded sacrifices and offerings. To get into God's presence, you had to pay a price. It was hard for a Jew to think of God as one who loved you and longed for fellowship with you. It took Jesus giving his life to tell people that you cannot even begin to be a Christian until you believe that Jesus Christ was truly the Son of God and that he died for our sins. You ask, what right did Jesus have to say that? Well, what guarantee do we have that the good news is true? We must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We must believe that Jesus knew God so well, that he was so close to God, that he was so one with God, that he could tell us the truth about God. Thirdly, I believe we must believe that God is a loving Father. We believe that Jesus is none other than the Son of God, and therefore what he says about God is true. We must stake everything on the fact that everything he says about God is absolutely true. Because we believe his words are true, we must obey them. We must unreservedly obey his word. Even the smallest actions of life must be done in unquestionable obedience to his word. So if we believe these three things, belief that God is our loving Heavenly Father, belief that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore tells us the truth about God and life, and third, belief that we must obey his word, then this life lived on the certainty we believe in Jesus. Let's look at the second phrase for just a moment, eternal life. Eternal life is the life of God himself. If we possess eternal life, what is that life like then? Eternal life will change every relationship in life. It envelops every relationship with peace. It gives us peace with God. We are no longer hiding from an austere God who is a judge. We are at home with our Heavenly Father. Secondly, it gives us peace with other people. If we have been forgiven, we are forgiving. We see others as God sees them. We are one great family joined in love. Thirdly, it gives us a peace with life. Because God is our Father, He is working everything for our good. As a loving Heavenly Father, He never causes His child to shed a needless tear. We may not understand life any better, but we will not resent life any longer. Fourthly, it gives us peace with ourselves. In the final analysis, we are more afraid of ourselves than anyone else. We know our own weaknesses. We know the force of our own temptations. And we know the demands of life that we put on ourselves, but we know we can face all of these with God. It is Christ in us that makes the difference. It makes us certain that the, fifthly, that the deepest peace on earth is only a shadow of the peace which is to come. It makes us certain that the greatest joy on earth is only a foretaste of the greater joy yet to come. We have a goal, a hope, an end to which we can now travel. This eternal life gives us a life of glorious wonder here, and yet at the same time, a life in which the best is yet to come.
Listen with me in closing to the words of this beautiful hymn written by Warren D. Cornell in 1889. Far away in the depths of my spirit tonight rolls a melody sweeter than psalm. In celestial-like strains it unceasingly falls o'er my soul like an infinite calm. Peace, peace, wonderful peace coming down from the Father above. Sweep over my spirit forever, I pray in fathomless billows of love. What a treasure I have in this wonderful peace, buried deep in the heart of my soul, so secure that no power can mine it away, while the years of eternity roll. I'm resting tonight in this wonderful peace, resting sweetly in Jesus' control, for I'm kept from all danger by night and by day, and His glory is flooding my soul. And I think when I rise to that city of peace, where the author of peace I shall see, that one strain of the song which the ransomed will sing in that heavenly kingdom will be, peace, peace, wonderful peace, coming down from the Father above, sweep over my spirit forever, I pray, in fathomless billows of love. Ah, soul, are you here without comfort and rest, marching down the rough pathways of time? Make Jesus your friend, ere the shadows grow dark. Oh, accept this sweet peace so sublime. Peace, peace, wonderful peace, coming down from the Father above. Sweep over my spirit forever, I pray, in fathomless billows of love. Join with me in a word of prayer, would you please? Our Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts in your presence today because we believe that you want to give us peace, peace with God, peace with others, peace with ourselves. Peace with uh, the, the fact of tomorrow. Oh God, you have a peace for each one of us. It's found in eternal life through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we long for that life to be ours. So fill us with the fullness of your life right now. And we'll give you praise. Lord, I pray for the individual who's listening this morning who has never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. May they open their heart and receive him now and be able to sing with us peace, peace, wonderful peace coming down from the Father above. Sweep over my spirit forever, I pray, in fathomless billows of love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. God bless you. Until next week, this is Mel Bennett bidding you goodbye. Well, I don't know about you, but I would love to see more peace in the world today. Thank you, Pastor, for these encouraging words. Next week, Pastor Bennett will deal with the greatest verse in the Bible, the golden text of the Bible, John 3.16. You can write to Pastor Bennett at pastorb at lifespringmedia.com. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May He make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.